Hey everyone, you are listening to Kesara Sara with me, Sarah Ann Lalone. I'm a teacher candidate studying at the University of Ottawa, sharing my journey into education with the world. Enjoy this episode. All right, good evening everyone. This is the 31st episode of Kesara Sara. And I am so happy because I am talking with Jen Apgar tonight on the podcast. And I have to say that this episode has been in the making for a while. Jen and I were just talking about it. Um, It was probably early September that we uh, first initiated conversation about the interests of having a conversation together. So it's been a long time coming. So I'm really happy that we finally have the chance to have you on the show, Jen. (laughs) Well, thanks so much. I'm excited to finally chat with you too. Yeah, for sure. So I have to admit, I also really fangirled over your two conversations with Chris. Uh, They like genuinely blew my mind. I listened to them on my way, on my commute home from Ottawa. And I could have just listened to them over and over and over again. I I want to because there's just so many things that you guys talked about. And I, I can't really express how how like insightful they were and how they opened my perspective on like a a ton of things. And the fact that you were able to come up with all of these analogies on the spot, like I just think you're really incredible just because of your analogies. Like it's so awesome. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. Um, It's funny because I think you actually possibly tapped me to podcast first and I'd never actually done a podcast before. So it wasn't because I loved Chris more or anything. It's just the way that everything ended up shaking out, but it's neat because I really enjoyed listening to your podcast with him about Disney and that got me re-excited and even just a different way to chat. So um, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm loving doing podcasts now, particularly with right. what's kind of cool is yeah. With people that you haven't met in person, you only know through your sort of your, your PLN. And I think, um, both you and Chris were new to my professional learning network mm-hmm. and that, and so that's even cooler. Cause it's not like we had this long-term right? relationship back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. And I felt like even though I know you through Twitter and through my PLN and, you know, through your blog and stuff, I learned so much about you through Chris's podcast. And I was like, whoa, like it got me so much more pumped to actually be able to talk to you on my podcast. So um, hopefully we'll be able to throw out a whole bunch of new and and fun things for for Chris to listen to. So (laughs) anyways, and this is is Sarah's show. Yes, it's a show. You're right. The Sarah and Jen show. So, um, before we get too deep in this, uh, I will let you introduce yourself to those you know I know about you. But for those who haven't heard Chris's podcast, um, give us throw throw down your your professional context. What you doing these days? So right now, um, I work in Upper Grand District School Board, which is in um, based out of Guelph, Orangeville, Ontario area. And uh, my current role is called 21st Century Technology Coach. Um, And I've in my fourth year in this role, after having worked for um, 10 years in congregated uh, gifted class. So kids that would come in, they're identified um, in grade four, five, and six, sometimes all triple grade uh, splits and so on. Um, And yeah, so that's, that's sort of where I am right now. That's really awesome. And I, like I told you, I really want to touch upon um, that position that you have later on because I really think, I don't know, it's so cool that we're like talking about positions like this. I know you've had it for four years, but for me coming into this profession, it's like, oh, I don't have to just be a teacher my whole life. I can go and do something like Jen's doing. So I want to learn about that. Oh, totally. And I love, and that's what I just would say too, is that I love, I mean, I'm so impressed and love that you're, you're doing this podcast well in teacher's college, because to me, the fact that you're not just taking on, you know, something like this for your own learning, but the, the, how reflective you are about it this early in your career, um, bodes well for the, for the future of teachers and, and you in particular. So Things. Yeah, that that means a lot. And it's, you know, I feel like I'm doing this because I have amazing role models in my PLN. Um, you know, like, to mention a few, Chris, Derek, Roland, yeah. Stephen, like, I see all of these educators who have podcasts and podcasts is just one medium to to reflect, you can just use Twitter, you can blog. And, you know, there's lots of fun ways. But I, I see all of these, you know, professionals and uh, teachers and you know, um, the pedagogue, I don't have the English word for that. Pedag- pedagogues? Pedag- you- yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. You can. Okay, I mean, not everyone knows what it means, but it, yeah, I think someone who was talking word. about pedagogistas. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. New word tonight. Um, yeah. yeah, having all these podcasts and reflecting and having all of these amazing conversations and learning from each other, and I'm like, why? Why haven't I not thought of this before? Like, I want to learn. I want to have conversations, especially because I'm I'm in this learner position in Teachers College, and it's just so fulfilling and I have I get to just hang out with you know people like you on a Wednesday night at eight o'clock like it's it's so amazing and it really like sparks that fire in me and you know even though I don't have my classroom yet I I get to speak with teachers who have classrooms and it gets me really inspired for the future so (laughs) there's my there's my throwdown on that (laughs) yeah I love it We were talking a lot about Chris tonight, but what actually got Jen and I together was the Chris Clough and Kesara Sara Disney episode that we did a couple months ago. So, you know, without further further ado, let's let's talk about some Disney here because I think that it's something that we're both equally passionate about. Is that correct? Oh, for sure. And what I loved about it um, is I'm not a Disney uh, alumni or. Uh, Cast for, for I'm not a former cast member, but okay, um, my, no, my brother is, um, and so it, it was just so I did not work there. But what I but um, I so interesting that I have like a a second perspective on it. So growing up, um, my grandparents lived outside of Orlando, so we had the opportunity and the means to go to Disney uh, a fair bit as kids. And my one so I have four younger brothers, and my one brother since he was six, wanted to work at Disney. Um, so what was kind of cool to me is that he made that dream come true. And uh, it was really interesting. I've been to see him while he was working there. We went as, as so I was an adult. Uh, my rest of my family went to Disney while he was working there. And then um, actually two years ago, I had the opportunity to go to a conference, uh, the iNACL conference, which was hosted at Disney. And so he now lives and works in Las Vegas, but he, uh, after having been at Disney for a while and then at Universal Studios actually, and now he's been in Vegas, but he, uh, he came back with us and traveled with my wife and daughter and I to Disney because it's sort of it's a special place to go with him particularly. Yeah. And it was so neat to even go in with him and like talking about being a cast member to other cast members. Mm-hmm. But the piece that I always loved, like peripherally through him as it connects to education anyway um when i resonated with all of the connections that you made and you talking to chris who was going to be taking his family and and all of these feelings having having gone there even to a conference that was you know hosted at the dolphin resort so it wasn't i mean Mm -hmm. truly immersive but i mean it was right there right so that close um and then getting to experience uh it was actually Again, the second time we'd been with my daughter to Disney. So I guess sort of Disneyified, so not a not a true like member of it, but I, I loved him sharing the stories. And and so you you would know, I mean, he would have been an older generation than your your most recent time, but him right. talking about sort of the culture of it of, of employees, uh, and particularly cast members within the international showcase like international right. village, right? Because as a Canadian, you can only work in certain places. Is that still true? Yeah, well, so did your brother work at the Canadian Pavilion in Epcot? Yeah, he worked, well, he worked at the restaurant. He was a server at the Canadian. Yeah. Fancy. So I had a different program than him. He did the CRP, so the Cultural Representative Program, and I did the IC, which is the International College Program. So I wasn't, you know, what I actually really loved is that I wasn't stuck working in Canada, like at Epcot, you know, like I wanted to live something else other than just like working in Orlando for my own country. Like anyways, I wanted something new. So I got to work at Animal Kingdom with all of the animals, um, kind of being like an educator slash tour guide, whatever you want to call it, adventurer, we call it. Um, So that was fun because I got to play a different role than just wearing the plaid and, you know, saying A all the time for for the guests who would, you know, request it because they could see that you were from Canada on your name tag and be like, can you say A or what context do you use A in? And it's like, well, the same context you use like uh in or anything like anyways. (laughs) Well, and so was that, was your program, did it always exist or was it like, do you know when it started? I don't know, but I feel like it's 
been around for a while because where I was working on the Maharaja Jungle Check, they, you know, they always had Canadian students coming in during the summer. Like it was their busy time and the, the ICPs would come in and then they would train them. And it was just like a regular occurrence. Like they were expecting us kind of thing. So I feel like it wasn't the beginning of the, of the ICP program, but. Cause I'm trying to remember, cause, cause I'm just how old I am. (laughs) My brother's two years younger than me. So I'm 42. So he was there like, cause when he, I think he was there before Animal Kingdom was even built. Um, so that might've been, no, wait, that wouldn't be true. When was, do you know when it, well, here, there you go. You, well, I heard that all Disney people must know all the answers to any Disney questions when they're on site. Is that true? Well, and then like, you can Google it now, but before Google, he said, you used to go to a secret phone and you would phone the people that worked at the database who would have to, it's like, oh, you have to say, excuse me. Oh, I will get that answer to you. Please wait here. And so there was this rumor, like, so people who were the in who knew it, knew that you could ask them any Disney trivia and they had to be able to tell you. And if they couldn't, they had to politely say, wait, and phone the secret bat, bat phone because this was before like internet <laughs> and look it up. Uh, I was never trained to know everything. Okay. <laughs> uh, luckily, cause like, holy moly, that's a lot of questions. And yeah. you know what? What's crazy is that they actually hire um, students who have never been to Disney before. Like wow. you have never walked on Disney property and go and work at the Magic Kingdom. And, and you will have to, See, that's- you have to learn on the spot where all the bathrooms are, what time the parades are at. Like for me, it's like common knowledge because I live and breathe Disney. I just know everything yeah. naturally because I've been there my whole life, it feels like. So for someone who has never been to Disney before or is just doing it because it looks good on the resume and they're not necessarily a Disney fan, like that's a big uh, responsibility. <laughs> Yeah, well, and, and so it's even interesting too because again, we were sort of a Disney family growing up. And when you were when you were talking about some of your favorites, I was realizing like, oh, I was like the '80s tomboy kid who like not didn't like some of the mainstream stuff because even even given that, like, which doesn't really fit my persona or identity, I loved Beauty and the Beast. Like my best friend in high school, her boyfriend wanted to be an animator and I remember Aladdin came out and he was so excited and, and I would run like at field hockey practice with my big Sony Walkman, the yellow plastic Sony Walkman, like audio tape and sing Disney musicals, right? Like, cause that's how, so it's just interesting, even though, even though sort of what resonates with me, even as an educator are sort of um, less traditional of the, of the, the princess musicals, right? So be right. it. Um, yeah, but yeah. It, it sort of, it was sort of part of, part of the, my upbringing. So I can't imagine um, I guess the magic would just hit people in a different way if they didn't already want to be right. Cause immersively, if you live there, you just feel it. And I loved you explaining it to, to Chris in your podcast with him, because I feel like I, I want that feeling, um, is so exciting and happy and like a curious, excited, like eight to 10 year old. Right. And so it's like, I remember sitting at the airport the first time we took our daughter and this, there was a young family and they were going for the first time. And both my wife and I had been before. So we were excited to go with our daughter for the first time, yeah. but um, they had, none of them had ever been. And the, the, the dad of the family was kind of like sort of grumpy and didn't know who was going to like it. And the yeah. mom was uh, like an Uber princess fan. And, uh, but I'm like, you can't not like, like, I don't, I don't understand how you could not is the, again like you, it's something magical about it and if you've yeah. never been like I don't I don't know anyone who has not liked it even if they went and this guy went in I'm like oh dude you're so grumpy and you think you're gonna hate it you will love it <laughs> you know I can understand that feeling of overwhelm overwhelmingness like it can be overwhelming in so many different ways um just from like the crowds you can be overwhelmed with excitement you can be just like yes. <laughs> overwhelmed with joy and and happiness to be there with your family but like Walt Disney World is big and it's huge and there's so much to see and so much to do. And in your first time, like you don't know where the best rides are or how to get there and you're turning the map upside down and you're asking, you know, every cast member in every direction how to get somewhere. (laughs) So I can understand how that could be maybe one of the most more negative sides of, of the Disney experience. But I think that Disney does such an amazing job with the layout of their parks and how they have the lands and it is just so well you can just follow the smells and you're gonna end up somewhere amazing in Disneyland like in Disney World I've actually never been to Disneyland before so it's on my bucket list 
Yeah. Well, so, but I love it because I just thought of analogy as you're saying this is I, I'm, there are some educators who are, are nervous to, to enter Twitter. Right. And, and I'm feeling like as a professional learning space and I mean, nervous in that they don't know how to navigate it right, or they're going to be overwhelmed by the stream moving too fast or having thinking they need to read everything. Right. And, and I guess what would, and then my next connection was going, cause I talked to Chris too about uh, just the end of the one of the podcasts about going to ISTE, like going to a yeah. big mm-hmm. giant ed tech conference and saying, yeah, if you, if you, if your goal is to check everything off and do everything, then you're going to be overstimulated and, and talk to all of the people or, I mean, again, I'm an extrovert. Crowds don't super bother me. Obviously, if it's super hot and you can't even move, then that would be crummy. But I mean, Disney does a very a pretty good way of sort of streaming that, right? Like the design of it is fantastic. It's like the best ever environmentally designed classroom even, right? Where you can't even see it, but it has to be intentional because how else would it work? Like from everything from their fast pass, like system, like all of that math and planning mm-hmm. It's, it's so int- oh yeah yeah but then not obvious right like so mm, they have intention but you don't necessarily see it it's not explicit yeah <laughs> it's and so it's so embedded that it doesn't that doesn't distract but then it's yeah so what I was thinking about that when you when you said that is that if if the way you want to experience something is to do it right and do all of it um, and I get that Disney is super expensive to go to as a person who's just going is going there, right? So I can understand why someone would want to, but uh, and especially if you think I'm never going to come back again, so I have to, I can't miss anything, right? Yeah. And I think about teachers sometimes feel that way about like their not just their experience going to professional learning, say they're engaged or, or, or distracted by that, like in Twitter, but even just covering all of the curriculum, right? So well, I have to do all of this, and so then they they can't enjoy the moment or be in the moment or be intentional about what is happening and just follow the smells and, mm-hmm. and go where it goes. Right. Like, and you're going to enjoy it. And, and the thing is, is that it's not, it doesn't end, but now again, Disney, you do have to leave, yeah. right. And if you paid for three days and <laughs> you missed all the cool stuff, then you're going to, you're going to be eager to go for more. But if you try and jam it all in, you're not going to, you're, you're going to, well, I mean, you will enjoy it cause it's all good. So, yeah. <laughs> but you won't, the same, you won't have the same experience, I guess. No, exactly. And you know, we're talking about the parks as like a really immersive experience and an immersive space with the sounds and the smells. And, you know, when you walk in the Magic Kingdom, the bricks are red on the on the ground and that, you know, it simulates like the red carpet and you're really walking into this big, beautiful kingdom, like this big movie almost. And I think that that's something that can almost be transitioned into the classroom, at least for me. As a, a Disney-fied educator, I look forward to creating, not like a, a theme park. I hate calling Disney a theme park because it's so much more. It's like a whole new, like a whole new world, huh? Disney, Disney yep. pun, right? Are you going to sing that? I love it. <laughs> I will not sing, however. Um, <laughs> no, but like, why can't our classrooms be as immersive as as the Magic Kingdom? Why can't we have smells and sounds and art on the wall or you know anything because we know what it's like walking in walking into the magic kingdom and just feeling that sense of of joy and comfort and feeling like home because honestly to me the magic kingdom is like my second home and why can't we make our classrooms kind of like the children's second the students second second homes because they're there basically (laughs) they spend more time in the classroom than they do almost at their house right so I don't know It, it gets me thinking well, and I think, so I think it can be. So what I, what I don't know, and I was trying to pre-read a bit, what, what are you, what are you becoming qualified in? You said French, but what, what teach, like Technically, what age or yeah. yeah. So I have, um, I'll be in a French school, but I'll be in a, anywhere from a grade four to a grade 10 class. And if I'm in okay. yep. high school, I'll be teaching English, which is kind of ironic. I'll be teaching okay, English gotcha. in a French school, like English lit, but yeah, but I could, I just think about like my English class, like having it, you know, the room full of, of books and just making it like cozy and kind of like not just bare walls. Like I, I hated classrooms like that when I was a student. Um, and I think that creating mm-hmm. that, that space, that, that learning environment, not only with the flexible seating, but just like having lamps and, and creating that dynamic in the classroom is, is really huge for the learning. 
Yeah. And I just, I, I had, so my portfolio now, so I'm qualified. Uh, well now I'm qualified K to 10, but I was qualified at teacher's college, primary junior. So K to six. Um, and then just did my, uh, in ABQ in math. So I could take the principal's courses. Uh, and cause we care a lot about math in Ontario right now. Yeah. So I thought it would be good to, to up my game there. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, it's just, it's interesting to think of like when you're talking about responsive classrooms, because I had the opportunity to go with a really strong um, kindergarten educator and her early childhood educator partner. Um, she had been our coach in our team for three years. So was, again, coming back to that coach role, but with a kindergarten lens. And so I, I brought a teacher from a section 23 school to come and observe her do it, how she does ob- assessment through observations and conversations. And I'd been in her classroom once before she had become a coach for like three minutes. I didn't even know her. And I just walked in and I just, it it just felt calm and nice and not like a spa in terms of like over the top, like, like, but I mean, so calm and she's got a good Reggio feel. And yes, in our kindergarten rooms on our board, they've put in a lot of wood floors and I'm like, it can't just be the, the sound and the feel of it, but there's something that, so it's got wood floors and she had like sort of, um, meditative music going in the background, but the kids were just like walking around and not like zombies, like in a, in a <laughs> not escalated surface way. Right. But in a, like immersed in what they were doing. But uh, like, anyway, so I remember feeling that the very first time I went into the classroom and I remember she had like a YouTube video that had like fire, like a fireplace. So I was like, okay, just this place, this place feels nice. Right. Yeah. Like it feels like a nice place to learn. And then, so anyway, so that I've been there for like two minutes and one visit, like four years ago. And so then this week on Monday, I got to go in and, and observe her and her teaching partner and she was coming back from a coaching role. So she even like, she got to be with the same teaching partner and they have a great relationship. Mm-hmm. And it just was so incredible to watch how students move around learning. Right. And and so again, kindergarten doesn't have a critic curriculum right now, in a traditional way in Ontario, but does have um, it's very Reggio based, which I don't know how familiar you are with Reggio Amelia's mm, probably Italy, not. that whole no. Okay. So anyway, but the, it's very, um, look it up sometime because of responsive classrooms and it's also has like sort of naturey feel to it. I mean, that not all material has to be made of wood. Like it's not a, a Waldorf alternative school type feel, but there's some of that feeling to it, but it's just such a, again, inviting place and not because Disney is exciting, but it doesn't feel overwhelmingly exciting. Like it doesn't sound like an old, like over, overstimulate it doesn't feel like going to a las vegas casino Correct. where there's also a circus going right. on right like um and so so that's because that would be too overstimulating probably for even people who are super excited about <laughs> circuses and casinos right too many lights so it's immersive like it's like your home and so i can people say okay well in play-based kindergarten that makes sense but then we have to t- make them sit down in rows and teach them how to read and write and i'm really wondering again for you going to be entering your career somewhere between four to ten yeah right four to ten right uh is that what that looks like in different uh ages and groups and I and I really reflected on with this other educator who was observing I said I feel like I feel like I've always been an educator who is pretty like my classroom can get messy and I don't really care um we could be like you know using duct tape and cardboard and the principal comes in and it's like what's what's Jen Apgar doing but I'm like but I know that they trust me and the kids are learning and even though it doesn't look like what a lot of traditional classrooms look like they know learning's happening parents are happy kids are happy everyone's learning it's good but I didn't realize until I I was there because as I'm watching these kindergarten kids like so there's water on the floor there's beans like and it's not it's not chaos and it's not dangerous but I'm like I'm seeing all these things that are like to me safety concerns, right? And I'm sort of, and I didn't interfere, and I, but I was like, I feel like a helicopter parent of like three to five year olds are going to fall down and get hurt, and I'm like, I don't, I don't even, like, why, where is this coming from? This is not like me, right? But, but, and I'm not worried that things were out of control, and so then I reflected with the educators afterwards. I said, so because I know them well enough and could give them this sort of feedback. I said, I'm just curious. I'm like, were you so in the learning that you didn't notice it? Do you not care? Is there a tension between? that like nobody got hurt it wasn't a big deal do you clean it up for them at the end of the day do you have them clean it up like so the other educator and I were talking like well maybe they all clean it up at the end of the day because what's the point of cleaning out in between and again it wasn't super chaos and they said yeah this is it's interesting that you say that because this is something we sort of had to to figure out like they did try and get the kids to to clean it up mm-hmm. um some of the time like but it's just interesting them, them talking about it but yeah but if I I realized how much my natural go-to was just to police and I was like, that is not 
that goes against everything that I believe in educationally. It wasn't until this context that I was realizing, I'm like, how often do I like with my junior students sp- waste time? I mean, not that cleaning up isn't important, right? It's an, it's a response, like right. responsibility that, you know, you use materials, you got to treat them with respect, but how much time did I, did I do doing routines and lose rich learning moments mm. because of that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and saying, because if she had, if this student had, they made them mop up the water, mop up the water from the water table for like, which would have taken them 15 minutes. <sighs> all of the rich learning that they were doing in that moment would be gone. And it would be like naggy teacher teaching them to clean up. Right. Even though that's a skill they need to have, that's not even what the skill they're supposed to be learning at school when they're three to five. Right. Like, anyway, that was a big tangent, but it's, uh, that's the other interesting thing about Disney. Yeah. Go ahead. ahead. I just like, Oh no, no. I just like, Oh, I'm getting a feedback from your mic. One sec. Oh, Oh, that's better. Okay. Uh, okay, good. I'll just cut that part out. <laughs> just because I literally said something okay. and then I heard myself right back in your mic. For some reason, I'm like, oh, that's not done. That's me. Um, yeah, well, what I wanted to touch on is what you said about you have them in these kindergarten classrooms learning and playing and, you know, not in rows in desks. And then they go into grade one, grade two, grade three. And in French, we call them little rows of onions I don't think that translates in English (laughs) but that's what we call them in French and so like why are we saying setting our kids up not I I don't want to say like for failure but why aren't we bringing that idea of this this responsive classroom more into grade one grade two grade three grade four grade five because in the schools that I'm working in, just at, acting as a tutor right now, there's desks everywhere, like in rows. <laughs> Maybe they're in pairs, but they're still in rows. And the students are still sitting at them and they're still with their pencil and their worksheets. So it's hard for me to think that, you know, what will happen when I get my classroom? Will I have to comply to to that norm when I, you know, very strongly believe in that flexible learning space, that responsive classroom, because, you know, that's how I learned best as a student. And I, you know, I truly very believe, like believe deeply in, in having that learning environment for the students. So that's just, it's somewhere where uh, I'm right now, I'm just kind of like worried, you know, it's like, what is it going to be like when I get my classroom? I don't want to do something that I don't necessarily believe in? Like, what's your take on that? Well, it's interesting because I feel like, um, and this is something as a coach, that it's interesting of who who you're coaching and how and to what end. So in terms of with the kindergarten curriculum, it being play-based, you can't really do it in rows anyway, right? And so even though people maybe judge that, yeah. But I think why is anything in rows? And so... um, that comes, it comes from an industrial model, right? If you, where, um, I mean, where an educate formal education was born sort of in that era. And I tweeted something about this when I was at the bit conference is that if this is the area it was made in, um, then the goal was input content. So people, because all the content of all the knowledge is held by teachers and adults in books published probably again by, mostly white men, right? But I mean, that was the, and you, so you would get the information and then you would output it in another context. So you were, so, and then that's what it looked like. And then, so to, to then train you for a job of where you would doing, be doing inputs and outputs. So there's a, I think it's Sir Ken Robinson. I don't know if you've seen, it's like a RSA animate talking about like getting people on assembly lines, right? So the, the sort of industrial model of education, but we don't live in that world anymore. So in the digital age, um, it doesn't, I mean, there's lots of reasons it doesn't make sense to do that. So my question is, is that why, why has education not shifted yet? And um, I feel like it has shifted for some. So if you've always felt this way, you're probably being born into teaching in a place where it will be easier than someone who went into teaching 10 years before you to be that kind of educator. Um, but it's still, if you're saying what you're seeing in your experience, it still doesn't look like that then you're new in your career, Who, who's your advisor, what, is your, what, are, what are the expectations? But I think sometimes the expectations aren't articulated. Like if, if there was, was a principal that said, um, 
you must have your classroom in rows, then a new teacher wouldn't even probably probably be brave enough to say, um, what what current research-based evidence is that from? Um, do you know what I mean? Yeah. They'd go, okay, I guess I want a job, so I'll do what exactly. you say, right? But it's like, why um, can't I just use so, my refurnished, you know, stuff that I have at home and bring it in the classroom if you're not going to furnish me other things than desks? Like, I can find another way if you want kind of thing. Yeah, and I think, and then work and health safety come in. That's the other part. But, but I mean, in terms of, like, which is, but I mean, even within that is that if you look at some spaces that have been transformational, so my, is what, what are, what are they, what are they using? And I think a lot of educators think, well, it worked for me or it didn't work for me. So traditional education worked okay for me. I learned how to game the system. I could be strategically compliant and intelligently disobedient at the same time. So I sort of, um, my big thing as a kid was that if an adult told me, uh, if I said, why do we have to do this in a, in a curious way? And they said, because I'm an adult and I told you, then I might make your life a little bit difficult. Um, but if, if you explained a reason, even if like just saying, you know what, here's the not really good reason. I understand why you don't want to do it, but it's something we have to do. And I had respect of, for that adult, then, then I would play, I would do that. And again, I wasn't a kid that cheated at things, but I figured out how to game the system because if everything's just done surface level, then I just got really good at saying the right things and writing the right That's words. Oh, do you know what I, I mean? Which I, I don't person, think. And I'm still that person. And I feel like even in teacher's college, like I can play the game of school. Like that's, that's how I feel, yes. <laughs> you know? Well, so, so then, then I think a great thing for like, I, I hope for you that you can then instead of play the game of school is like, make an awesome game that's like Disney or an escape room or whatever you want it to be and invite your kids to be in that space mm-hmm and co-learn and co-create with them. And that if you don't land in a space where you feel like you can do that, then dance that tension of wanting a full-time job and pleasing people with being who you truly are, right? And I, and I, I mean, it, the good news is, is you being bilingual will be a great asset because you can work probably anywhere in Ontario that you want pretty quickly, right? And so even if you hadn't done an awesome podcast and weren't connected in the way you are in your professional learning network, you will you will land somewhere and then you hopefully have your choice. No, but I'm serious. Whereas I think that's the case is that wouldn't that's so you have a lot of assets that you've worked hard towards, right. That are going to help you in that domain. So that, that would be my sort of not knowing you in real life mentor advice is that don't, don't conform to a box that you don't believe in Mm -hmm. because you won't be happy. Right. Right. Like, and if you're not happy, neither kids be. Exactly. (laughs) But my wondering is how, how many teachers who do teach in traditional ways are genuinely happy and some are right. Like, and so it doesn't, it doesn't, you can, I mean, there can be uh, effective teaching happening in what looks like a traditional model and way to me, it all comes down to relationship with your students. But I'm thinking that students of today in the digital age, um, they navigate the world more differently. So there's a great Ted talk. Um, I can find it and send it to you. Uh, that we had someone show us at an in-service and it was talking about examples of what kids were doing. It's like making the extracurricular curricular. So saying, okay, talking about this student who um, figured out at the age of nine, how to like put her little Hello Kitty minifigure into the earth's atmosphere and space and, to, and do a pro uh, and go pro it. And then post it on YouTube and talk about how she had figured out how to do all of this on her own. If you use that same, you know, grade, whatever, five girl comes to it's okay, you're going to do a worksheet on plants today for science. Okay. Like, even if you're the most compliant kid in the world, it's like you, you figured out how to send something into space yeah. by yourself from watching YouTube. And now you have to do a worksheet on plants, like in a row with don't talk to your friends uh, on paper, no assistive tech. Like, uh, so how, why like the world, the expectation is higher. And I remember the other example, I remember when Trudeau came in as prime minister, I don't know, it wasn't the first day, but in his first couple of weeks, he did a Google Hangout. He connected with five schools across Canada. Oh, um, and yeah, he did it. It was a, a live on air Google Hangout. I can find that. I actually found it on my Facebook feed, like however many years ago, like this happened. Um, but I'm like, if that's the bar, like if you were in one of those classes, you think you can talk to the prime minister on your computer in your class at school and he's going to answer your questions. So like, you're not going to read a textbook about... Prime Minister, like in a row, like so. The so the world is is what it is, whether you like it or not, right? That we are more, we're a more connected world. And so the other piece is in the rows when we were being 
dumped in with knowledge and then you had to dump knowledge out. A lot of the the jobs we were preparing people were, are, those are the jobs that can be automated by robots, right? So whether we say we needed coders, is like assembly line learning and assembly line work. That's what's being taken over by technology. It's developing the technology and the relationships and to, the ability to collaborate with people from different cultures and, and, and problem solve and innovate. Those are human skills. They will be human skills. And that's what I mean, those are the those are the competencies that are going to be coming in Ontario to replace our learning skills, right? The 21st century competencies. So, um, as soon as this September, right? So those are the. So I always would tell my students, and again, I had the the, the because I was working with gifted learners when they came into my program, they were reading two grades above level. They were at, at least at level for math. Some of them had learning disabilities. A lot of them had social pragmatic stuff that we were working on. But I sort of always said to them, I said, hey, you know, you you right now have the like have the ability to um be getting level threes and level fours in your report card i said but what what's going to get you through life is is the front part that's the your learning skills piece and now i think because knowing that the ministry is sort of shifting that to be um creativity innovation entrepreneurship critical thinking problem solving global global citizens and sustainability all of those pieces uh that is harder to do in rows without technology yeah right? Like on paper and a pencil in your row, those skills are harder to build. So I, I think the shift is coming. I think there's lots of reasons. And in terms of coaching, why different teachers and different administrators are uncomfortable yeah. with that. And again, as an educator, I, I, I respect that they're uncomfortable. I think it's a fight or flight feeling of change, right? And, and I mean, we can unpack that more if you want, but I'll stop rambling for a second. Um, I think, I think there is I think the change is slowly coming. Uh, and I think some people are excited to ride that wave. And I think you're, you and your mindset are probably again at the right time and place. Um, <laughs> I'm but so ready it's going to be. <laughs> well, I just think this is my yeah. pushback and because. Go for it. Personally. Okay. So I am in teacher's college. I am getting taught traditionally. I am sitting at a, at a desk uh-huh. in rows, basically yep. being taught lecture style from the teacher, the professor who is the I master of again. all oh, knowledge. Yeah. It's not a, a community. Our classrooms are not community of learnings where we share our knowledge or anything really. It's like you sit there for three hours and you listen and that's about it. <laughs> It's a good thing if we have, uh, you know, we get to go to a museum or or anything, you know, in my son's class, we got to go to the Museum of Nature and it was like, holy moly, this is awesome. Like we get to go out of class, you know, we felt like little kids basically. Um, Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to get to is that we as teachers or future teachers are a being taught traditionally in that whole like lecture style that the professor is the know all tell all. And we're not necessarily being taught that whole that whole idea of, you know, don't teach out of the textbook, teach, you know, the the 21st century competencies. Like I only know that because I have a PLN, I know what's going on in the world of education. Um, like I have I have I know teachers who work in in school boards that are telling me all this really amazing amazing change. So I want to make sure as a teacher coming into the field that I'm up to par with this this shift, right? But the new mm-hmm. teachers coming in that, you know, aren't me, not that I'm saying that I'm, you know, the know-all tell-all either. I'm just saying that they're not being trained to to become these types of teachers i feel like we're being trained to be still the traditional teachers so how you know how is that shift going to take place if all of these new teachers coming in aren't aren't being taught properly or taught differently well and so it's so great talking to you in the context that you're in because i think uh i've in my head sort of unpacked this and as recently as today with a colleague of the different places of where change isn't happening yet. Right. And it sort of makes sense. So how does does change happen generally? Right. So if you think of, again, respectfully of teachers college professors and the institution of uh, Ontario universities. So Ontario is one of the last to go to a a two year program, Um, but all education. And I've done a project with uh, another 
not related to education project connected to another university. And it's still very ivory tower ish and academia ish. Um, and the, so your professors are still going to people who have tenure and are the professors in teachers college are going to have been teaching before <laughs> exactly. there were technology. Yeah. Technology, and that's true. And so, this other piece is that my big struggle as a coach also is, is you know, we're wanting principals to be educational leaders in in the in the digital world in the digital era in the twenty first century, but they won't have been teachers during that time. And then you have teachers that are in who have been doing things for twenty five years. And so, I can't remember which book it was listening. To, I was listening to it was one by Michael Fullan, and it was talking about how there was some project or research that he was doing, and I think it was happening in Ontario. I can find the name. It's one of his books, Change Leader, which one it was. But he even talked about saying, we know that pre-service is somewhere we need to go, but we, can, we can't we can focus on everything. So right now we're going to focus on. But interesting because all the change needs to be happening at once. So if you were to say, what, where's what's urgent? So slightly different context. It wasn't necessarily pre-service, but saying, okay, so say all of a sudden there were epic instructors in uh, pre-service teaching who were training or, or like, again, who were modeling practicing what they preach well sorry practicing what 21st century learning is saying we should do right so you're doing collaborative learning all the learning you're doing your pln that's what teachers yeah. college look like like oh, how awesome would that be goodness. first of all who would who would be te- yeah it would be so cool but unless you started an alt ed yeah. like there's not enough te- but so say you could right so say somehow you know all of you people in your pln all of a sudden worked at your we're running your teacher's college so then that would be great for i think people. derek would totally I think that What's Derek that? would totally start like his own school oh, and start no. teaching pre-service teachers. <laughs> oh, and, and I think, and so my coaching role is sort of trying to do that. So say we could do that, then that solves the problem in the future. Right. right? But then you're still coming into schools where you're the minority, like you're the, the minority yeah. in terms of numbers, your administrator haven't changed. So, so then if you go the other way, so say we could, okay, no, 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 we don't focus our energy on pre-service. We instead say, we're going to find, all current and future administrators, so principals, because what I'm learning in my system role is that so much, I mean, uh, and there's great research that talks about teacher efficacy. So teachers' confidence and competence to do their job uh, is the has the biggest impact on student learning over time. So as a, as a, if, like, as a parent, they would say, okay, well, what makes the biggest difference in your child's academic career? The number of good teachers they have in a row. Oh. That's, that's it. That's the sort of the biggest factor. So what, and then of that, what uh, collective efficacy and Jenny Donahue is, uh, you can, should follow her on Twitter too, if you don't already. Um, she has done written three books now, but talking about collective efficacy is the more of that you have in a collaborative culture in a building, the better overall, right? Because then everybody gets better. So in my experience, what, what allows that to happen? So more than just pockets of excellence or brave shift disturbers or awesome, weird teachers, right? Like is uh, an awesome weird principal who supports that and is able to create and my big thing I like is like foster a culture um, that and and intentionally interrupt behaviors that contravene that in a respectful and growing way right so that's, that's a, that's so a that would one. be <laughs> I couldn't even write that all down yeah. once well, it is it, and I think that's a piece is that, and then you're running a school and you're dealing with like, so when I took the principal's course, I did it. Well, I don't know if I want, I, well, I told my director of my board, I don't think I want to be a school principal. I'm interested in systems right now. I said, I, I think I could do it. And before I took the courses, I'm like, if there's going to be too much stuff, I don't like, like budgets. And like, I don't, I like managing, I like managing and working with people. I like parents. I like kids. I like some aspects of the idea I like, um, but I'm like, I don't like all the work in house. I don't like all the boring yeah. scary stuff right <laughs> i mean that's so i'm like why would i choose to do that there's um so i would like to not do those parts of the things um but i wonder historically who chose to become a principal and why um and and um to your point before like saying being excited about the role of a coach is that if if you go into education at uh at a youngish age. So I became, I started teaching full-time when I was 25 or 20. Yeah. yeah 25. Um, then you, you can change what school you're at. You can change what grade you're teaching if you need change or because I'm not someone who can do the same thing all the time. And even I, when I taught the same grade, the kids were always different. So my learning was always, and the curriculum could have been the same because the curriculum takes forever to change. But I mean, the students are different. So that's what drives it. And then I'm like, and then I learned something from before. And so it's not like I'm distracted and, and innovating and changing for the sake of it. It's like, it's from the learners. And I'm like, I don't want it to be stale. I don't want to do the same. I'm not a, 
a robot on an assembly line. It cannot do the same thing over and over again because that's the definition <laughs> of insanity, right? So, um, so, but then to aspire, so it's like, so, okay, now I've reached a threshold, whether, again, uh, Gladwell's 10,000 hours or whatever. I don't think I'm an expert teacher. I mean, I've, I've learned so much in being a coach of what I will do differently if I go back to a classroom context. Um, but the only, there's, in elementary, there's teacher, and then there's vice principal, principal, right? There's no other things in education. And so the other aspect, yeah, anyways, no, no, I'm keep, rambling. No, no, keep going. I, I'm very interested. Don't stop. <laughs> Okay. Well, and so I think that's interesting too. And I think the other piece is as education has changed for people in education um, is so if you have a solid job and you have a union and you have a pension, and if you are happy and like what you're doing and your kids are learning, things are good, right? You're probably making some sort of change. The other part that I find interestingly ironic that I've been unpacking a lot is that in, well, and I don't know all the professions in the world, but in all the people that I talk to outside of education, most jobs have some sort of mandatory learning, uh, at least, at least on a two year basis, right? So you have to, if you're an engineer, you have to do a certain number of courses. If you're, my friend's a radiation therapist, a doctor, like uh, even I'm sure like, like some level, you have to maintain your education. Um, in education, you don't actually have uh, yeah, to do that. I've been thinking about this too. You can get your teaching. Have you? Did you mention this on Chris's podcast? Because I feel like I was also thinking about this recently. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So maybe I did, but I'm and, and so then some people say, well, you know, but our, I'm an engineer, and the professional learning we got is not relevant. It's not good. It's like I'm like, oh, okay, sure, but at least you have to do. I mean, it's it's not good that it's not good and doesn't meet your needs. That's not good learning. But and I and I I'm not saying that's true of most educators, but we. I'm thinking about how like we are should be modeling lifelong learning all the time. Right. And so, and I think it's the, like, like you were saying too, the reflective learning, like this is why I'm so excited for you at this early in your career. Cause I didn't figure out how to be, I mean, I think I was sort of reflective, but I didn't talk to people about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, because, well, no, because, and, and, and if you're going in your own classroom, like you, I mean, I'd go to the staff room and talk about all these ideas and stuff. And I had good friends and some of like, oh, Jen's talking about stuff again. <laughs> but like, oh, don't you wonder why this happens? Like, um, and I mean, but I didn't reflect in a, in a true meaningful way with other people around say, please give me feedback because I want to get better. Or what do you think of this? Not just was this lesson good or do you have these manipulatives? But it's like, okay, this instance happened and I did this. What might you do differently? Like, um, and I'm, I am so excited for you that you have that. You're right. You're probably not learning that in teacher's college, I'm uh, guessing, to be like super Well, we reflective. have a class. We just we have a class that we just got a few weeks ago, uh, and we had a whole a 40% project on being reflective, but nobody really told us, like, what being reflective looked like, like, which, you know, mm-hmm. nobody modeled, and it was the first time that we actually had to be reflective about something. Well, about our practicum that we did last year, which was, to me, way too far back in my mind to actually be reflective on lessons mm-hmm. that I taught in March, you know, before March break or even, like, in February. Like, I don't remember what went well and, you know, things like I wasn't in that moment of my placement being reflective enough to write things down and to be, you know, for next time do this because, you know, as educators, I understand that we don't always have the time for that. And especially in placement, you're just so overwhelmed and just trying to please almost and keep the chaos down to a, to a low level when you're teaching. Cause it's just just very stressful. Sometimes we all understand that, but yeah, the fact that that whole reflective piece, we're, we're doing it now in November for things that we've been doing that we've done earlier on this year, um, which I think it's kind of too bad because I would have loved to finish my placement the end of April and then have, you know, go back to the university and reflect on, on things or even during our placement on Fridays or, you know, every second Friday, go back to class and reflect Mm -hmm. and talk about it because I felt really alone. You know, I, I went from my first year of teacher's college, September to, you know, the middle of February with my, with my new colleagues were really excited. And then you go to placement and you don't talk to anyone else and you're just stuck in your school and you don't know what anyone else is doing. And you might not even have other colleagues that, you know, in the same school as you. So 
it's like, who do you turn to? Am I doing this right? You're with a new teacher. Like, yeah, looking back on it, it, it is, it's almost like you're in that silo. I know we've been talking or I was listening to a podcast about, you know, mm-hmm. the, the teachers being in a silo and especially as a teacher candidate, just getting thrown into a classroom and being like, okay, this is your time. You're going to practice teaching now. So good luck. <laughs> yeah. It, it's hard. Well, and you, and you made me reflect even more on like what, what I think I, even in my, so I did my teacher's college in Australia in 2001. And I, so it's, it, it, I remember all of my pracs. Um, and I remember, so again, concrete things uh, in terms of, the learning, but the discussion with my associate teacher um, was all of the richest stuff. And so my first prac was my shortest one. Uh, but I, he was great, even from the very beginning. Like I remember he said, okay, so you're going to do a lesson tomorrow and it's going to be on grammar. And these kids, will, they really want to push you and challenge you. So good luck with that. And he was, I mean, that was sort of, so this was a grade six opportunity class, they called it. It was a, a congregated gifted class. And I was so nervous because it was my first prac. It was grammar, which I didn't remember even being taught, wasn't very good at. And it was Australian. Like, they don't even use the same grammar. I mean, because their, their accent and the way they conjugate things, like, in slang, I didn't even understand. So I'm like, That's so no. So I went, and this is like, I, I wasn't even Google back then. It was my wife introduced me to Google that year. It was Metacrawler on the internet. So I'm like, I'm just going gra- grammar. And I found a, I found a grade 11 grammar worksheet I'm like I'm gonna do this with them and then I told him I said hey guys this is grade 11 but let's let's unpack this together um and then I remember the feedback from him he's like I sort of did that to you to sort of throw you the walls to see if you'd survive because you have to survive and that was I mean I remember that piece about him my my other prac was a grade four prac and I because we were in Australia like I didn't have any transportation of how to get there and the school was sort of out there so the teacher my associate teacher actually picked me up every day from residence and drove me to my prac. So our comp, we got to have that natural time on the way to, and the way back from class to debrief all the time. Cause we had to right? And, and again, she was a great associate teacher. Um, so I, so then I reflect on my experiences with my, so I've had four associate teachers um, and I'm a talker if you didn't figure that out already, <laughs> but I mean, trying to, to debrief with them and talk about it. But I think what I would do differently now, even just from my experience in the past, like, honestly, two years in my role, because we've been really focusing on assessment, like observations and conversations and feedback and weird tangent. But one of the things in a unionized teacher's culture, there's a lot of fear because I'm a teacher too. So I'm an an elementary, an FO member, right? Um, But I'm going to be coaching or working with other teachers. And so there's like, in our union collective agreement, you cannot, a teacher cannot evaluate a teacher, right? So even if, if I, my daughter goes to our board, like I can't, I mean, if I even have anything to, to uh, say about my daughter's teacher, which I don't, they're all awesome, but um, I could, I shouldn't even do that, right? Because I, and so I, we had a meeting recently and our union rep was there. I said, okay, we're living in a collaborative culture of where we want to grow professional learning. So when on the year where we, we were on, uh, work pause um, when we were in negotiations, in negotiations, one of the things was teachers were not supposed to do professional learning through the board. Um, but here I was in a job supposed to be a coach. I'm like, so the teachers thought they couldn't like work with me because I was part of the board, but I'm like, I'm a fellow teacher. So we figured out in our board a way that if they requested us, that it was teacher asking teacher to work with you in a coaching role. But the big thing was evaluation versus assessment. So I was like, I would, I think I've become better at giving people feedback so still good at building relationships, reading people, what they're ready for. Like, do you know what I mean? Saying, okay, can you give me feedback and not just good job, gold star, or do more fractions, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, but meaningful feedback. Um, and yeah. I think that's hard. And I think part of the reason is the culture is a lot, thinks it's a value, evaluative. And then there's this sort of shame or not wanting to be vulnerable. Like, I'm not good enough. I have imposter syndrome. Like all of these things that are human nature that sort of percolate up and don't let people sort of take feedback to get better. And, and, and reflection is metacognition of yourself. You're reflecting on how can I do better? And some people, when they hear that, they're like, which means I'm not good enough now. And I'm like, that mindset is so sad for people, uh, teachers and students, right? It's like, no, if I'm a critical thinker does, or I want to be better, it doesn't mean I think I suck now. It doesn't mean that everything that I do is bad. It's not a criticism. It's like how, okay, this was good. I, I'm a lifelong learner. The trajectory is always going up. Yes. It's that growth mindset, right? You have to start somewhere. 
you know? And if you think that way, you know, you don't want to push that onto your students either because you don't want your students to, to think like that. So why are you thinking like that? I, I don't think that's fair. But I, I totally understand. And that whole piece about the criticism thing and and getting evaluated, you know, as there's so much pressure for us as teacher candidates to go into a classroom and excel, right? You're going, you're in your practicum and you're just really hoping that it's going to do good because it it is, depending on who your associate teacher is, it is a safe space to take risks. And it is your, you know, in, in our teacher's college, we only get two practicums. So this is only going like in my second year, I'm going to be in my second practicum and it's only going to be my second time wow. teaching and my first time ever in a high school context. Right. So this is all new to me. This is a whole new ball game. And luckily I know the associate teacher that I'm going to be with. So I really look forward to, like you were saying, those, those meaningful conversations that you have after the lesson because I think that that is something that I lacked during my first practicum and something that I will, that I have learned from. I, we, oof, I don't know. It must've been the dynamic between my associate teacher and I, but there was not a lot of feedback. My teacher was like, Oh, it was great. Yeah. Really. It was that, it was that gold star every time there was no improvements. It just, it was great. Yeah. No. Okay. Moving on. Yeah. Tomorrow, this and that. Like, I don't think that I, maybe I grew just by myself, like the feedback that I would reflect on, you know, on the drive home and thinking about the next day and the next week and how I can improve myself. But I was not getting that feedback from my associate teacher. So I found it really tough to, to improve. I was just kind of judging it myself, you know, because for her, when I was teaching, it was more of a time for her to get her stuff done or stuff like that. It wasn't really like that mentorship that I was looking for. So hopefully um, in this practicum, it'll be a little different. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think, I mean, each, each teacher, each teacher's college, even in Ontario has, does their practice differently. Right. And so is there a best model? I don't know. I've had teachers from three different teachers college, one in Australia, not the one that I went to that did their practice back in Ontario. Um, but my first ever one was, and this was a while ago now, uh, was from University of Windsor and no one in our board had ever had anyone from University of Windsor. Um, not that it mattered, but it was just interesting. Cause so people, the other people like didn't want to take someone from Windsor because no one had done that paperwork before. Right. Like, so it's like, okay, whatever. Oh. So my principal's <laughs> like, you're good. I'm like, I've only been teaching for three years, but what was so cool is having a student teacher that early is obviously my principal thought I was confident enough to do it. Or our board was on the hook for having a mentor. I don't know. Anyway. Um, it was oh. but so <laughs> You're probably amazing. <laughs> well, but so quickly though, I was when I watched her do this math lesson, I realized through that all of the things that I did that were effective that I had never seen before. Because oh, she doesn't do this, this isn't working. It must be because I do this that I wasn't even aware of. Like so it was it was rich for me so early, and I thought it was gonna be oh like God. scary going, how can I teach her? I barely even know what I'm doing. But it maybe but I was able to so clearly, I think, um, well, articulate that to her because it was happening to me in real time. I was like, okay, I'm not telling you to teach like me, but what I'm saying is here's what I noticed. And what you made me realize is this is how I do, how I've modified, like how I do my lessons that I've never actually reflected or thought about before, because it was like, it wasn't like watching myself, but it was like watching someone else with my students. Right. And so then I'm like, Oh, they're not, they're not interacting with you. I'm like, what do, but I would do this. I'm like, Oh, but I wouldn't have done that. And not, and not again. So I didn't jump in or intervene in that moment, but I was able to say, Hey, this is what I've learned in my short amount of experience. And this is how I've modified for these learners what I do, which is different than because again, I mean, my new thing is what, what I've known about gifted ed from before is kind of like um, special education, like making things accessible or open tasks. So all learners can learn um, in gifted ed. It was always about critical thinking or higher order thinking. I'm like now I realize I can do that with any class Right. But that wasn't traditional in terms of a lesson. So one of the things she was doing is she was like talking for too long at the beginning, like front loading her minds on or whatever. And then wow. they were all bored and starting okay. to do the activity because they were so engaged. And then so I said, no, no, no. I give them sort of like a nugget. They start digging on it. Then when they start, when I feel the energy in the room, they start complaining that what's not working. Then they're, they have incentive to learn the next part. Because <laughs> I'm like, OK, so you're struggling with this. Now I'm going to teach you this. Because if I started when a Charlie Brown teacher with you at it before, you're not even listening to me. So I said, that's what I realized. This yeah. is the, and maybe they're just used to it because that's the way I operate. Or maybe, but I chose to operate that way because I think reacting wasn't working. Because yeah. it worked. 
Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I feel, I feel for, yeah, I, well, I feel for you. And so, but that was early in my career. And then when I had student teachers since then, um, I've always, I've really enjoyed the relationship. And I guess that's the thing is that I don't know how everybody is chosen. Um, I know like, for example, more recently, um, we have, my board is close to Wilfrid Laurier University and they have, they do pracs where the people are doing observations like the first two weeks of school. Like so on the first day of school, I had a student teacher, um, which is cool because they get to see startup, but it's also as a teacher, you're like, okay, well, I guess we're doing this now, right? Um, and so I had one who I had for the first bit and then I had another one from the same one who was phenomenal, who I had for my six weeks. She was with me her six weeks and she was very competent and capable, capable from the very beginning, right? She had a good, she had a background in early childhood education yeah. or undergrad, right? So like she was solid. So again, my level of feedback that I needed to give her, I was, I was pushing her further than I pushed any other student teacher before because that was the trajectory of learning that she needed. So this is, so what I would say to you for your next one, I mean, you have a relationship with this educator, but if you, because you're a reflective person is to be so metacognitive of saying, okay, what, if I was giving myself feedback or what questions would I ask? So if you say, Hey, I'm, I want to know where I think of uh, uh, one of my capacity, like where I want to build strength based on my prac in whatever your other prac was, is this particular thing. Yeah. Like, and I know, I know, I'm not a student teacher now, but I'm terrible at wait time. Like, uh, so when you ask kids a question, for them to oh. answer, I'm so bad at it. Like, <laughs> that's the, yeah. Oh my God. I can totally relate. Cause it's like, how long do I leave the awkward silence? <laughs> like, yeah. And, and so, but I'm like, but that's something I would, pra- but then I'm like, so I said, I want feedback on it because I'm trying hard to, and I've, I've come in meetings too. Like my first principal in my role now, she said, you know, Jen, you talk a lot and fast and your brain goes really fast, but like let other people talk in the meeting. And because I had a good relationship with her, what she wasn't saying, shut up. I didn't hear her say shut up at meetings, but I'm like, wait for other people whose brains don't process quite as fast to be able to say something. Right. And so, but I've told my team, I'm like, am I doing that again? Like, and it wasn't, I'm not like afraid of it. Um, but it was just sort of saying, can you give me feedback if now everyone's saying, no, no, you're not doing it. But then if I, if someone's saying something about someone else, I'm like, Oh, I feel like I do that. Do I do that? And they're like, but they, I mean, I want them to tell me the truth. Right. And they're like, no, no you don't do it like that. I'm like, okay, yeah. but you're t- you would tell me the truth, right? Because I'm not going to get better if you don't. Um, yeah. So if you, it's not like, it's almost out of courtesy, yeah. right? Like, especially for me, I, I want to receive the feedback. Like, don't think that it's going to hurt my feelings because I'm here to yeah. learn. It's either I, I fail and I learn in this safe space with you, you know, as my associate teacher there, or you're just going to let me continue doing this the wrong way until I have my classroom. And then it's really not going to work. And I'm going to be all by myself. Yeah. Right. So, and one other thing, if you're going to high school, this is, I've tried this in a coaching role and I would try this explicitly with students now is, um, and there's a great, uh, uh, what's it called? Sketch note that I think Sylvia Duckworth maybe did, but it's on Philip Schlechty's uh, levels of engagement. So it talks about um, like totally disengaged learner. And there's like a little icon in the sketch note of like the person with their head down, like hating it, like, and, and it goes up and it explains all these things because it's sort of a level, but one of them is strategic compliance. And it's like saying you're sitting quietly and you're nodding your head and you're smiling. So I'd say to my teachers now at professional learning with me is that I don't want you to be strategically compliant. Like, I don't want you, I don't want you, I mean, I don't want you to, I don't want you to check your email either, but like, I don't want you to smile and nod and like, and do things at a service level. I said, I'm pretty good at reading people, but I don't know you. I, you're not in my class. I've built a relationship with you for a long period of time. So you, you need to do two things for me. I don't want you to be, I want you to be uh, ideally authentically engaged because if you're not, then I'm not doing my job properly. So please give me that feedback. And I said, and here's the thing, I'll try and read it and I'll try and adjust and I'll try and check in. But if you don't tell me, you have responsibility to tell me or otherwise you're choosing to not like you're choosing to stay in this environment and I'm trying hard to read it, but I don't know you to know that. And so even just framing that and, and with, with high school students, I would say that too, like instead of acting out or texting under your desk, like if, if this isn't meeting your needs, like don't yell it out disrespectfully, but maybe say, Hey, uh, like, and like, don't say I'm bored. I don't want to talk about history anymore and be a jerk about it, but just say, okay, look, can we yeah. do this in a different way? I don't get it. Like, I mean, and build that culture right from the very beginning for your learner, for your, yeah. I mean, and I would do it. I would do it for, I mean, kindergarten conceptually, you'd have to say it in a different way, but I would do that. I, I would say it explicitly for my students because I, I let them do that already. I would sort of shift, shift and adjust and it's like, okay, because you're getting all these cues, right? That's your teacher moves, you're reading the situation, yeah. which you get better at over time. 
But if you actually explicitly ask them, like, and show them what it is, because, and I love this, like saying, I don't, like, and, and teachers at PD do that all the time, right? Even if they're nice keeners, like they want their A+, plus, they want their tech mocks too, or they're just like, I'm just going to smile and nod and I'm getting a day off and I just, but then nothing bad happens, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's totally understandable. And I've written all, all of these really <laughs> awesome, um, just ideas down because now I, I already feel like I'm so much more confident going into my placement in February and it's like so far away. And I don't even think this conversation was meant to be um, kind of uplifting for my placement, but it, it, it just, it got to that space and I, and I'm really happy about it actually, because, you know, I'm almost more happy to be able to share this with the other, co- my, my colleagues in teachers college, because I think that this is going to be an episode, an episode that can be really helpful to them because I know that, I'm not the only one that feels the way yeah. I do and the, the things that I've shared tonight. So um, I think that it's just going to be very insightful. Um, and I, again, the reason why I do this podcast is to be able to share it with others who are, you know, there might even not necessarily pre-service teachers, but actual teachers oh. who, who needed to hear some of this tonight. So I really appreciate um, all of the insightful things from Disney to uh, responsive classrooms to that whole pre-service teacher, mentor teacher um, environment and, and learning space. I, I have to thank you for the whole hour and six minutes I have went by already. Steven uh, from Boy Set is going to be upset because he blocks out an hour for all of my episodes. So we're going to have to squeeze in a, a very special extra six minutes for me uh, here and there when this episode plays on voice ed. <laughs> okay. Well, I will, uh, I, I will try and uh, try really hard to stop talking. Um, and that was happening with Chris too. Cause I'm like, <laughs> Oh, okay. So you can cut me off. If, if it ends, uh, you guys are all great. Keep doing fighting the fight. I would, I would be more succinct if I wasn't rushing, but here's one, one other challenge to you if you want. Um, Cause again, pushing, pushing learning for people who are ready that pushing. Um, it doesn't have to be you specifically, but I'm curious as to if any of the faculty would, what their feet, I would love, so if you don't want to take it, I would love the feedback from the faculty of ed around how they, what they philosophically believe about 21st century competencies, teacher delivery model in teacher's college, and how we, I mean, I personally could work, want, work together with whomever to like figure out what does that look like to practice what we're starting to preach and if they're not aware of it being preached, uh, happily give them access to that information as it exists from the ministry um, to support yeah. that because it's got to be hard for like it's nobody nobody no teacher goes in going I want to I want to do things that are old not best practice that aren't meeting the needs of my learners because that's the way I've always done it like that's not everyone anyone's intent really truly. Well, I thank you again so much. And for the rest of the conversation that I had entailed about your position as a 21st century coach, we're just going to save that for Kesara Sara Gen 2.0. Sweet. I guess if I talk How do you like more 2.0s, I'm good with that. I love to talk. So I'm up for it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Kesara Sara with me, Sarah Ann Lalone. You can stay connected with me on Twitter at Sarah. S-A-R-A-H, Lalonde, L-A-L-O-N-D-E-E. And you can also find my podcast on iTunes under Kesara Sara.